Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to continue in Philippians. And in, so last week, we kind of we took a, a singular message, um, kind of a standalone message outside of the series. So thank you for letting me kind of wander off on that direction last year. Or last week really felt like it was important and had a great impact for a lot of people. Um, but the week before that, we were wrapping up chapter 3 in Philippians, and we were talking about all of the, um, we were talking about all of the, uh, the, the reasons and the, the uh, how can I say that, the kind of the perspective behind having disagreements with other believers. And we talked about needing to maintain respect for people who we had disagreements with on secondary issues and primary issues, you know. Um, that we don't divide over fellowship on the prim- on the, the secondary stuff, but we do on the primary. And it's the foundation of our faith. So if you missed that, I want to encourage you to go back and you can watch it online again. But this week, that's important to be reminded of because Paul goes one step further. He goes one step further on this particular chapter, past the point of just being in disagreement. He takes it one step further. And so we're going to talk about that this week. And so there's two uh, two points in today's message, not three. So I'm sad. You know, if you're sad that there isn't three, I'll try to pack the two with as much stuff as possible. But number one in your notes, the first line in your notes is this. Uh, be peacemakers. Be peacemakers. Philippians 4, 2 through 7. I'll read it out loud and you can just follow along on your notes. Now I appeal to Yodia and Sintichi. So first of all, let's pause there for a second and talk about who in the world named these two poor women these names, right? Like this is this is hard enough to say. The jokes get better as the message goes on. Don't feel obliged to laugh. Um, and none of you there all looking at me like we won't. <laughs> um, so Yodia and Sintichi. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, Sazitis, it's at their parentheses, to help these two women, for they will they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names were written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. Okay, so... As I got into my study this week, I realized that not many historians or scholars know a lot of information about Yodia, Yudia, Woya, however you say the name, and Sintichi. Not many people know a lot about them. Not a lot of, of historical context is given about them in Scripture, and there's not anything outside of Scripture from history that would tell us a lot about them. What we do know is that the entire church of Philippi began with a women's prayer meeting. And some scholars believe that these two women, Yodia and Sintichi, 
were actually involved from the very beginning. That's really important to remember here because the, um, the, the letter of the Philippians that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi was written 10 years after the church was established. He's there. These, the, uh, several of these women get saved. They start spreading the news about the gospel. The church begins to grow, and it's 10 years from that point until these words are written from Paul to the people there. It's 10 years. If these women were, in fact, involved in that early prayer meeting, it means they have been walking with God for a decade. These are not newbies. These are not people who have, you know, just got saved like a week ago or, you know, they've been in the church for three weeks and they're still kind of rough around the edges, not really sure what they believe. You're talking about people here who have walked with the Lord. They have evangelized the city of Philippi. They have helped Paul on many occasions. So you've got people that have have a lot of a lot of history walking with the Lord, and here they are at odds together. The other thing that we know about these two is that this disagreement was probably public. And the reason we think that it was probably public is because Paul in Rome, very far away, hears about this disagreement. No internet, no cell phones, no calls, no social media, no messages, no nothing. Word traveled all the way to his ears personally that there was a problem with these two sisters in Christ. He felt that it was so important that, uh, well, let me give you a little context for this. When a letter was written from Paul to a church in a specific area, the church would gather together and a single person would read the letter openly. He didn't take this little piece with these two ladies who were having this huge feud and disagreement and kind of put it off to the side. He wrote it in the letter knowing it was going to be read to everyone. He's not doing that to call them out. He's doing that because everybody already knows it's going on. And so he's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's going to deal with it in the way that he really feels is necessary to deal with. So we just talked about chapter 3, handling these disagreements and they're not following those, 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 that kind of protocol. So he goes one step further, and he asks a friend of his, Cyzygus, to intervene. Now hopefully I'm not going to have to say Cyzygus a whole bunch of times in this message. I'm going to refer to him as our guy Cy here going forward. And uh, just for, you know, for my own sanity, right? But this word Cyzygus, his name Cyzygus, next line in your notes, has a very interesting meaning when it comes to this particular scenario. And it says there's two words. Yoke fellow. Y-O-L-K. Yoke fellow. Not yoked, like somebody who's been in the gym or is like cell block B big from all the push-ups hit them for years, you know, incarceration. But talking about yoked like that, like yoke fellow, like joining someone together. So next time your notes. It is not a perfect translation of the Greek name, but its meaning implies someone who is yoked like an ox. Next on your notes, ox. Together with others. So here's how this would work. There would, if you were taking two ox, oxen, right? If my, if my grammar is correct here. You take two oxes that are oxen together, and you want them to go in the same direction to plow the land 
to, uh, to break up the ground so that you can start planting things for agriculture. You would not just put them in front of each other and tie one end of the, 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 you know, the tool to one and one to the other and expect them to walk in the same direction because they're not going to walk off in different directions. One's going to kneel down, one's going to stand up, one's going to go to the left, one's going to go to the right. So what they did was they created a yoke, and it was an instrument to take this ox and this ox and connect them together, sometimes with these, these, wood, um, they, they, these wood pieces that were tied together around their necks. So that what would happen is that you have to move at the same pace in the same direction. You didn't go off on your own. So when it says yoked, that is what is being implied here. That our guy Sai is, he's getting involved to the point of, I'm not going to go my own direction. We are going, we're all believers in Christ. We are yoked together. And I'm going to move in the same direction to break up the ground going forward. <clears throat> the picture here, next time you notes is of someone who has a true relationship with others and is willing to help them do the hard work of moving forward. The word picture of someone who has true relationship with others and is willing to help them do the hard work moving forward. Paul asks our guy Sai to help with these two women who are in this dispute. Next on your notes, in times where we cannot settle our own dispute, we need a Sazygus to help us. A third party, somebody on the outside, we can't settle it when it's too emotional, when it's there's too much hurt, there's too much anger, there's too much blind by but the frustration. We may need somebody else, like our guy side here, to step in and help. On the flip side, we also need to be a sazygus to others when it's needed. Now, remember, these women aren't newbies. They've been, in, they've been in the church and serving the Lord for more than a decade each. And Paul decides he's just not going to send anybody. He specifically names our guy Sai. Now, let's back up here and remember that the church in Philippi put a big care basket together for Paul. There was food, there was money, there were parchments, there, were, uh, there was probably a coat, there was all this stuff that he could use while he's in prison, and they sent it, not through FedEx or UPS, they had to hand deliver it, and they had to pick somebody who was trustworthy, and you, you probably remember his name from a couple weeks ago, his name was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus would hand carry that, that gift all the way to Paul in Rome. If you remember, he got sick, he almost died, they prayed, um, the Lord allowed him to, to regain his health, and he actually worked for a while with Paul, preaching the gospel in Rome from prison. He worked with him. He is more than likely the person who took the letter from Paul and took it all the way back to the church of Philippi. This man has carried some precious cargo in his hands. He has been trusted with massive amounts of responsibility. Can you be, can you imagine being handed an entire book of the Bible and it's on you and you alone to get it from point A to point B on foot by yourself, traveling alone, the immense responsibility of carrying the words of Paul inspired by the Spirit of God to help build up an entire city's worth of people. 
Epaphroditus was trusted. This guy was, um, that, uh, he was the one they trusted to send and to receive. If it were me, and I was Paul, I would be like, bro, when you get back there, when you help me handle this, to Epaphroditus, he's right there. I've worked with him. I, I've seen him labor. I've seen him nearly give his life for the sake of, you know, pushing Christianity forward and, and, and sharing the gospel. He's almost given his entire life for this. So for me, I'm thinking, hey, Epaphroditus, go back and tell these ladies that's having this problem that's public. Hey, help them figure this out. But that's not what he does. He doesn't ask the one right there, he asked someone else, our guy Sai, to help him. What that tells me is that the level of trust and uh, the, the level of favor that Epaphroditus had, our guy Sai had to have more. His reputation had to precede him. So let's take a look at three things that we can, three character traits about our guy Sai here that we need to kind of maybe take on for ourselves and understand how this is working here. So letter A in your notes. Our guy's side was trusted. He was trusted. How do we know he was trusted? Paul specifically requested him for the job. I don't want nobody else. I want this guy to handle this scenario. Letter B, our guy Sai was wise. He was wise. Well, Matt, how do you know he was wise? Because Paul didn't say, he didn't tell Sazaius, hey, get those two ladies that are feuding, get them outside and work that out. He didn't say, have them be quiet. He didn't say, take them off somewhere and just tell them to end this whole feud. He didn't tell them to do any of that. He didn't try to cover it up. He said, help them. Help them. Give them assistance. And so, Sazaius has to go in and judge what's going on. He has to judge it correctly. The Spirit of God's got to be active in him. He has to understand the teachings of Paul, understand what the ramifications are going to be. And so, he has to step in in the middle of it and figure out a way to help them, not solve it for them. Help them get to a conclusion. Letter C. Our guy Sai saw the bigger picture. He saw the bigger picture. How do we know he saw the bigger picture? Because Paul was relying on him to help them settle the matter so other believers would not divide as well. Several years ago, um, I met with. Um, the first year I moved to Phoenix, and I, uh, a gentleman that I was a roommate with in our discipleship program, he said, hey, will you go with me down to like Mesa or Chandler, somewhere down on the East Valley, and uh, we meet, help me as I meet with somebody. And I said, sure, who are we meeting with? It was our day off, and uh, he said, I'm meeting with someone who, um, you know, it's just crazy how we got in contact, but I'm meeting with someone who works for a satanic cult downtown, and she wants to get out, but she's afraid, and she wants somebody to help her break through. 
So um, she, uh, as we walked in, she didn't, she didn't know I was coming, so she's very afraid. So she's like, look, I would trust Matt, you know. So we sat down at some restaurant in public, and this lady began to tell us things that this satanic little cult would do in their city. And here's one of the things that she said they would do. They would open up a phone book. If you don't know what a phone book is, you're probably on this side of the room, right? Like, or maybe scattered around. If you don't know what a phone book is, they, before the internet, they would print giant books and drop them off at your house with names and addresses of people. And so, and phone numbers of people so you could call them, like businesses and stuff. And the yellow pages were the business ones, and the white pages were the residential people. Well, they would take the yellow pages and they would go to the churches and they would go alphabetically down the list. And they had 20 people in their little group. Um, you know, if they had like 20 people in their little group, they would send them two at a time to the first 10 churches. And their goal, their literal goal, what they trained these people to do is to come into the church, build relationships, and start fights. Oh, this person said this about you. Oh, I talked to them and they said they don't like you. And once they would stir up dissension and division and anger and frustration and hatred, they would leave and go to the next church. The reason they do that is because the enemies of God, our adversary, works in division. He works by separating friends, separating families, separating people who should be in relationship with each other, separating brothers and sisters in Christ. How that story ends is um, that she started to see inconsistencies because in some churches, in some churches, um, the people that were sent from the cult would come back very early. Like they would be sent out on a Sunday morning to go sit in the service, and they would go back and meet up and tell what they were doing, and you know, do we need to go to the next church or whatever? But one guy in particular came back. One one group came back very early when they went to this one church. I'm not sure which one it was, but she didn't remember. And she said they were very, um, very afraid. And so the leaders of the other cult was like, "Hey, go back to that church. What's the matter with you? These are just." Stupid church people. Just go over there and start causing some problems like we're supposed to, and then we'll go to the next one. So for three weeks, the person would come, and he would turn around and go back in 10 minutes. He couldn't stand longer than 10 minutes in service. And I, I asked her, I said, why? And she goes, I'm not sure what was different about this place, but as soon as they started worship, these Satanist guys said that they saw these two giant beings stand up and turn and walk towards them as soon as worship started. And they left. And I asked her, I said, why didn't it happen in the other church? And she goes, I don't know what the difference is because I'm not, I'm trying to get out of this and become a believer in Christ. I'm just telling you there was something that happened during worship that drove out our division. Worship 
has a larger role than we may realize in healing and unifying people together that are believers. Paul knew that there was a risk of high division with this public argument that had not been settled. He knew that there was a very real possibility that people would begin to take sides. He knew that people would start backing up one girl or backing up the other one, and they would start fighting, and they wouldn't be seeing each other, and then they would start avoiding people, and it would start to fracture. See, here in America, what do we do? I think it's so uncomfortable. There's another church right down the street somewhere. I'll just find a little. And if that one was uncomfortable for me, or I didn't like it, I'll just go around the corners and know. We're already divided out. The church in Philippi wasn't a church in Philippi. It was the church in Philippi. Imagine being in a city where there's one church where every believer, regardless of secondary divisions or secondary disagreements, still came together to fellowship, to have each other's back, to worship together, to stand on the uh, outside of the synagogue or the temple and sing songs of praise to God, to help care for each other. What would it be like to have a church in a city, the entire city that did that? That's what Philip, the church of Philippi was. It wasn't like there was a hundred people in this little congregation that was going to divide out. No, Paul realized that this division needed to be addressed right away. Why? Because it could split the whole thing. Because there was only one. He understood that if they divided, the entire Philippian church had a problem. So Paul says, okay, these two ladies are going at it. They've not settled their dispute. I'm picking somebody that I trust, who's wise, who sees a bigger picture. I'm going to send our guy Sai in there. He's going to connect to them. We're all believers. We're all going the same direction. So he's going to settle this thing, you know, or try to help them work it all out. And they're going to go forward and do the hard work of reconciling relationships. He's committed to that. And then Paul says, while you go do that, let me give you three tools. Let me give you three tools. There's the next line in your notes. Paul tells them, be considerate. Be considerate. In your next line in your notes, uh, you'll write, submit our heart to the Lord. Submit our heart to the Lord. Why do you put that? Why do you say be considerate and then submit your heart to the Lord? Because if you are going to truly be considerate, you are going to put yourself in the other person's shoes and you're going to try to see something from their perspective and leave your own viewpoint away. You don't set it down. You might be able to do that out of personal discipline a couple times, but you want to try to make a lifestyle habit out of that, you are going to need the spirit of Almighty God to help you because, my friend, your flesh and your discipline ain't that strong. To be considerate of the person. Is that all right? The only way to become that considerate of others is to truly submit your heart to the Lord. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, 
hold tightly to what is good, love each other, <coughs> excuse me, love each other with genuine affection, and take delight in honoring each other. <coughs> take delight in honoring each other. He's saying this on the heels of knowing these guys are arguing it out. And he's saying, be considerate. And then here, we, here he is telling another, another church in another city, hey man, honor each other. How in the world am I supposed to honor someone when I'm angry at them? You're not going to have that ability. That ability comes from the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit going in you. Be considerate. The second tool he gives them is Remember the Lord is coming soon, or in parentheses, keep eternity in mind. Keep eternity in mind. Why in the world would this be a tool to settle a disagreement? Why? Because Jesus told his own disciples who were about to watch him be murdered, resurrect, ascend into heaven, and leave. He told his own disciples, this is going to be tough for you. But don't worry. I'm coming back for you. Let's read it. John 14, 27-28. This is Jesus talking. I'm leaving you with a gift. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So... Don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you. I am going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really love me, you would be happy. I am going to the Father who is greater than I am. If you have some type of irreconcilable difference, if you have some frustration that you cannot manage on your own anymore. It is under your skin. It is in your heart. It is something that is just you can't let it go. You are at odds with somebody. They have hurt you. You have been wronged in some way, shape, or form. One of the ways we get a clearer perspective, a tool we are given by Jesus is this. Remember I'm coming back. Remember I'm coming back. All of this stuff seems all crazy right now. But if you just think, man, Jesus is coming back for me, and it's probably sooner than later, you may just be willing to be like, this is nonsense. Why am I even spending my time on this? I'm wasting time. I'm wasting energy. I'm wasting creativity. I'm wasting effort. I need to remain focused on the fact that Jesus is coming back for us. It gives them a different perspective. And the third uh, tool that Paul uses here in the scripture is this. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Our massive issue can seem small when compared to Christ. Our massive issue can seem small when compared to Christ. Have you ever been in one of these scenarios that you have been at odds with someone, a friend or a relative or, or, or somebody in your family or somebody that you're at work with and you, man, y'all just butt heads all the time. Y'all don't get along. Sarah has never experienced this because everybody likes Sarah, especially at her job, right? <laughs> Sergio is nodding approvingly right in the back. That's great. Good man, good man. And Nina agrees. Awesome. 
Sarah's never experienced it. So if somebody who's had this experience, like myself, I can explain to you what this feels like after. But um, if you, has anybody else ever been in a scenario where you are just butting heads so much, you're so frustrated in whatever the situation is, you feel like you've been wrong, you're angry, and then you talk to your friend. And they're not in the middle of the that's going on in your heart and mind. You know what I mean? They're not in the middle of the static or the or the wave pool that is your emotions. They're not going back and forth on that ride with you. And they're like, hey, how are you? And you're like, oh, man, I'm just terrible. And they kind of give you an outside perspective, and all of a sudden, that big, huge, massive problem seems to kind of calm down real quick. Have you ever been in one of those scenarios and walked into a prayer time with God and said, hey, this is my issue. And then when you sense his presence, like I was encouraging you to do earlier, and Ian was leading you to do earlier, that big old huge massive problem, when you set it up to be really eternal, all-powerful, almighty God, all of a sudden looks like the size of a pebble instead of a boulder. You ever had that happen? Paul is telling them, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Why? Because He is the perfect friend. He is the perfect advice giver. He is the perfect Father. And when you go to Him and sit in His presence and read His Word and listen to His Spirit, all of a sudden, the thing that you can't see past becomes very, very tiny. This is a principle we can use in our life in general, but he's specifically telling them, hey, you're at odds. I get it. Our guy size him, step in here and help you. But here's a couple tools. Be considerate. Remember the Lord's coming soon. And pray to God about this. Because when you take your big problem, the Almighty God, the perspective shifts. I don't have what I need. I'm, I'm behind in my life. I don't, I don't, I'm not as far as I thought I would be. I thought I would have two cars instead of one paid off right now. I thought I'd have a vacation home. I would be a CEO by now. I'm, I'm behind this. Uh, I, I didn't start college when I thought I should. I dropped out early or I, and I went and I never should have went or I didn't go and I should have. And all these things back and forth, back and forth. And you can create a scenario in your mind that is bigger than what it really is. Because Almighty God can solve those problems. Because to Him, the last thing Paul says about, um, let me be able to read the scripture, Psalm 29 11. The Lord gives His people strength, the Lord blesses them with peace. He gives His people strength, and He blesses them with peace. Then, he, then Paul summarizes all of these things. If you be considered, if you remember the Lord's coming soon, if you take your issue to Almighty God and He changes your perspective on it, look what happens. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. I want the peace of God in my life. 
I'm in the middle of a crazy scenario, and I don't want him to settle this whole thing. I want, I've been hurt by somebody, I've been wrong by somebody. I will get him, God. I'm going to stand over here and applaud and just wait by my phone until someone tells me that they broke their leg or something, you know, or I word gets back to me that they're doing bad or whatever. And what happens? I want his peace, but that's not how we get it. We think revenge and vengeance and us being quote unquote right will bring us the peace we want, but it never happens that way. How do you get the peace of God that exceeds anything we understand? We settle the dispute. We be considered. We remember the Lord is coming soon, and we take our problem to our massive God and see exactly how big it really is. It's not the Lord. Matthew 5, 9. This is Jesus talking. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Now, when I said earlier that some of us may need a Sezitis to step in, or sometimes some of us may need to be a Sezitis for someone else, somebody in this room, I guarantee you, had this run across your mind or heart. Oh, I don't want to get involved. Oh, it's such a mess over there. I know these people are fighting and arguing. I know these people in my own life and my own relationships. And maybe it's at the church or maybe it's at work. They're always, oh, they're just going at it. And I don't want to get involved. I just want to stay over here. And there's part of me that goes, well, good. Because no one wants you to be nosy or butt in someplace where we don't belong. But the idea that we would allow other people to self-destruct on each other and while we just sit by and watch is rooted in self-preservation, not sacrificial love. And that's a mouthful. I don't want to get involved. How come you don't want to get involved? It's going to take effort and energy and listening to people to complain about the same thing over and over again. And well, having this person cry on this hand and be angry on this hand and this person cries and this person's angry. And man, oh God, why are you trying to lead me and to try to help these settle this dispute and division? Why? Because he hates division. Why in the world would I get involved in that self-preservation? That's not the sacrificial love that we as believers are called to engage in with each other. This is all very, very meaningful for one reason. Peace and unity are vitally important to the function and witness of the body of Christ. I want to say that one more time. Peace and unity are vitally important to the function and witness of the body of Christ. If we cannot live in peace with each other, settle our own disputes in this in this house, in the, the place where we are with people who are supposedly yoked together, we're all going after Christ. We're we're at different you know uh, levels. We're at different levels of understanding. You know, some people have been saved for a few weeks or months. Some people have been saved for a few decades. 
no problem. We're all going in the same direction. And if we can't be considerate of one another, if we can't remember in our own scenario that Christ is coming back soon, and we can't, um, we, we can't uh, take our problem to our God who we say solves everything and get a different perspective on it, then how in the world is the world out there that is lost and not believing ever going to believe anything we have to say? They won't. We have to be able to example it here and that example be so unbelievably countercultural and bring us so much joy that other people would go, how in the world did you let that go? I heard what they said about you. I heard what they, I heard the, the mud, I saw the mud they slung and how it hit you. I know that it hurts you. I, I know you well enough to know it hurts you. How in the world were you able to do that? How in the world can you just let that go? Are you, well, I'm just that kind of person. No. No, you're not. <laughs> Except for Sarah. But the rest of us are not. Sorry, you just you picked, you got picked on that. I'm sorry. You sat up close to be cool by a fan, and I'm just giving you the book, girl. I'm sorry. Um, why can we not solve our own issues if we're going to be a witness to other people? I put a reflection question so that if you go back to these notes, and I encourage you to do that, go back to these notes and these scriptures later on this week. Here's a question. Is there any place in my life I need to be a peacemaker? Is there any place in my life I need to be a peacemaker? Maybe it's in a relationship that I need to bring peace to, or there's something in my heart that I've been struggling with for a long time, and I need to bring it before God to experience that peace. Point number two, last one for this message. It is a direct quote out of the passage we're going to read. It's fix your thoughts. Fix your thoughts. Philippians 4, 8, 9. Here's where it's pulled from. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Next time you notes. The word fix does not mean to repair. The word fix does not mean to repair. It means to forcibly focus. Forcibly focus. If you have ever um, been to my house on a Friday night in youth, you would see the attention of some of our youth fixed on Fortnite. Completely. Eyes wide open, zoned in, thumbs moving at a million miles an hour. And you could say, I just won the lottery. I'm handing out stacks of $1,000 bills over here. And what would happen? Nothing. Because they are fixed. Their attention is fixed on building this digital world and killing the digital enemies, right? Or whatever game they play. It's hilarious. When we're talking about fix, it doesn't mean fix your thoughts like your thoughts are broken. No, it means to take 
your thoughts that are running in this direction and grab them and say, I'm going to force them this direction to focus here. See, in the heat of the moment, our thoughts can run wild and leave us in a deep emotional and mental hole. You ever experienced that? If you have, and I have, and come tell, talk to me after, I'll explain exactly what that does to I have not been very disciplined in my mind. I've let those thoughts run, and I have created scenarios that didn't exist um, and then had the fight in my head, and it never materialized. And if you think I'm nuts, you're close. I'm, I'm close. I've had full-on arguments that I have gotten worked up about, like breathing hard, like, with somebody who didn't even know that I thought that that was how that was going to be. They didn't even say that to me. All they said was, hi, Matt. Hi. But I know what you're really thinking. And if you say this, I'm going to say this. And then if you say this, I'm going to say this. And if you say that, I'm going to say that. So say something. Like a, like, like a crazy person, right? Like, you know? And guess what? They, they walked out and were like, see you later. You know what I did? Yeah, I'll be ready for next time. And I burned myself out because I allowed my mind to just scroll around on discipline. I did not focus it where it needed to be. We, the next time you know, we can work ourselves up into excess anger if we do not take control of our thoughts. If we don't take control of our thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 through 6. This is Paul talking to another group of believers about something similar. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your disobedience is complete. Or when your obedience is complete. I don't know if you remember this last year. I think it was last year. Um, I guess they picked a bad time to escape from prison, but it during COVID. But anyway, a couple guys last year escaped from a prison here in Arizona and were on the run. There were two guys. And they were on the run for about eight or ten days, and the police eventually caught them. <clears throat> and they found them in this little bitty town. They had, you know, stolen clothes, like the classic movie. You know, they stole clothes from somewhere and changed their clothes, you know, and, and were trying to blend in and, you know, and ask people for food or steal food or whatever. Well, they finally... That the cops finally descended on them and caught them. And what did they do? They took them back into captivity. And what's the first thing they did? They bound their hands and they bound their feet. This is the picture Paul gives us for chasing those thoughts that are run wild in our mind. Go get those things, bring them into captivity, and put your focus where it needs to be. So I'm going to ask you a question. There's a little bit of feedback here. It's a really easy answer. Who takes our thoughts captive? Based on that scripture that we just read, who takes our thoughts captive? And we'll sit here for some of my answers. Anybody? The first word. We do. We 
have been given the power to take control of our thoughts. Paul doesn't say, go down and pray and beg God to change the thoughts that are coming into your head. Nope. He says, we take those things captive. Fix your mind on the right things. You have been given the power to change those things in you. Next slide in your notes. We are not responsible for every thought that comes into our mind. We're not responsible for every thought that comes into our mind. We are responsible for what we do with them. We are responsible for what we do with them. Next time you notice, I actually just said it a minute ago. We have been given the power to take control of our thoughts. Now, this is going to be very countercultural because our culture tells us if you're angry at someone or frustrated, then you go online and you put them on blast and you tag them in your post or you make a meme about them and then you know tag their social media profile or put it on their wall and we all laugh and gang people up on them and it's just yay and we feel good. But what Paul is telling us to do is something against our human nature. He is telling us to do something against our own fleshly desire. He's saying, if you have been hurt, if you have been angered in some way, if you've been done wrong, if fill in the blank, whatever that scenario that is, that is, people talk bad about you, whatever that got you just worked up into a ladder, you have the ability to take your mind and your thoughts and go, uh-uh. Not going to be dwelling on these today. Not going to be sitting here wasting my time, effort, energy, creativity any more on these fake scenarios. I am going to turn forcibly, forcibly focus my mind. I'm going to fix my mind on things that are good, holy, pure, excellent, and worthy of praise. I am not going to allow myself even if there's a disagreement, to fuel the division or the fire of anger inside of me by allowing these, by allowing these thoughts to roll off. No, I am in, I've been given the power to turn those around and force them, force them to think about the things that are scripture. Here's what that means. Next on your notes. We are not at the mercy of our own thoughts and emotions. We are not at the mercy of our thoughts or emotions. If we're having thoughts of wanting to get even with someone who has wronged us or take revenge on someone who's hurt us, we have the ability to stop ourselves and fix our mind on what is true, right, honorable, pure, lovely, and admirable. We have the opportunity to think about our scenario through the lens of the Holy Spirit, not through the flesh that we're trying to die to daily. So let me give you a couple of two practical things here that would cover a lot of people. That just in general. 
Why are there thoughts running out of control in our head? Why are we bombarded with these crazy, wicked, evil, nasty thoughts? There's two main reasons. There's, I'm sure there's some other reasons. There's some smaller reasons and some, some different things you could pick off. And, but the majority of the majority of these thoughts come from two places. Number one, they come from our enemy. Um, several years ago, several years ago, probably eight or nine years ago, I was, um, uh, was working. I, we just moved back from Texas, and I was um, going to work and, you know, just providing for the family and seeing what the Lord would have, you know, to do with us and started us on our, you know, cleansing journey kind of. And uh, it took several years, and at the, at the beginning stage of that, um, I had two days, two very long days, but I had two days where I had some of one night and two days of some of the most horribly sexual thoughts that just ran across my mind all the time. And um, there, I, I had a dream at night, and it was, and I couldn't. There was the, the, the women in the, in the in the dream were faceless; they had no faces. But I just had these thoughts, and I was like, "What in the world is going on?" And I wish I could tell you that any time I've had thoughts like this throughout my life, that I have immediately grabbed them, taken them to captivity, and said, no, I'm not going to think about this. But I'd be lying. But in this particular instance, I, I didn't know what to do. I asked God that, man, please let these things stop. I don't want to think about this stuff. It was just crazy. It was hitting me all the time. And so what I did was I went to Nina. And I said, and I, I had to make a decision. Because it could really sound like I'm having these terribly nasty thoughts about some other woman. I wasn't. But I don't know if you know anything about the Polynesian culture. But if I were to go to her and say that, um, I would have cousins and uncles and aunts, the aunts would probably be at the front of the, aunties would be at the front of the, of the door, being like, bro, what did you say? You know what I mean? Like, they'd be like, I'm going to, I, I'm going to fix this right now. Like, we don't, we, we don't need the Lord in this one. Like, we'll take care of it ourselves, right? And so I was like, eh, be careful here, but, um, and I, I'm not kidding. But so I went to the end and I said, I'm having these, create this crazy dream last night, the last two days I've been having these thoughts. I don't want these thoughts. I don't know what to do. You, I don't know what to do with this. And I, I, I'm just telling you because I, I'm, I'm just trying to be open and transparent. And she goes, I know what to do. She sat me down in a chair, put both her hands on my head, and prayed for me. And they immediately stopped and never returned. One source of these crazy thoughts you might be having might be your enemy. And that's what I experienced. Another source of where these thoughts is come, or what came from or can come from for many people. If it's not the enemy, for many people it's this. It's what we're taking in. 
if you are watching, listening to, consuming in any way things that are opposite of what that list of, that Paul gave us, that are not pure, that are not holy, that are not good. If you're constantly engaging in these, in these areas of, and avenues of entertainment or music or movies or videos or whatever it is that you're engaging in and you go, man, I'm having these thoughts. Here's a practical tip. Cut off the intake. Turn off the screen. Phone, tablet, laptop, television. Turn off the music player. Whatever's playing your music. Turn it off. And stop ingesting that stuff into your heart, mind, and spirit. And watch how your thoughts begin to not have to dwell there. Because if you're constantly taking that stuff in, it's going to have an effect on what you're thinking about constantly. Now some of you might go, oh my gosh, Matt, do I have to listen to the cheesy Christian radio station now? Is that what you're telling me? No. Because I'm not even sure about some of that stuff on there, honestly. I'm not even sure about some of that or the people who wrote it. I'm not telling you to kind of fall into line of the whatever's labeled Christian. No, I'm telling you, fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable, things that are excellent and worthy of praise. And I don't care if that has a label of Christian or secular, pop culture or underground. I don't care where it, what kind of label it has or where it got the label. I'm telling you, the standard is scripture. The standard is his word. The standard is what Paul is laying out. The spirit of God through Paul is laying out for us today. Cut that stuff off from you. Don't allow it to come in anymore. And watch how that fixes some of the things. Matt, if I cut it off, I've been doing this for nine years, Matt. And if I cut it off today, my mind's going to be fixed tomorrow? No. You're going to have some flashbacks. You're going to have some things that you've seen over the last uh, elongated period of time that pop back up in your mind. But you are not at the mercy of the thoughts that come into your mind. You have been given the Spirit of God and the power through His Spirit to take those thoughts captive, just like we talked about those those uh, those two uh, prisoners who escaped prison, to bind them up, to sit them down and say, no more, you are not going to have access to run your behind throughout my mind anymore. Your thoughts are not going to sit here and just play their games and put these little seeds of other thoughts in my mind anymore. I am going to forcibly focus. I'm going to fix my mind and think about things that are true, pure, lovely. I'm not going to allow it to happen anymore. And some people in this room have allowed your thoughts to run wild because you think you are at the mercy of them. Well, this is just what's happening to me. I don't know what's happening. No, stop it. You take a step. You open God's word. You turn the television off. You close the lid of the laptop. 
you drop the phone off in somebody in your in some other room and leave it there. You call somebody who's a friend, a Zygus, to help you through the scenario. You go to the Lord yourself. Make the move because the power of what you're focusing on is in your But let's just talk for a second. Let's combine the last couple of weeks. And let's talk really quick about what happens if we just let those things run around. A little fleshly thought, unchecked fleshly thought, can turn into a negative emotion. A negative emotion can turn into anger. A little anger can turn into resentment. A little resentment can turn into hatred. A little hatred can turn into bitterness. And a little bitterness poisons our entire heart. It spreads like yeast, robs our joy, calluses our soul, leaves us jaded, and disfigures our peace with the blade of cynicism. All of that Will they all go down the entire road? Nope. Uh, there's a potential for them all to. To land in bitterness and poison everything you do in your entire outlook on life. There's not many if-then scenarios in the Bible. Um, there are a few. Like if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. <clears throat> um, because of those if-then scenarios, the church has created false if-then scenarios. If you give me a thousand dollars, you will be blessed. If you just sow a little seed right now, your sins is going to go away. Nonsense. But this is an if-then scenario. That truly works. It's in your notes. If we take control of our thoughts, focus them on what is excellent and worthy of praise, put into practice, practice, not just talk but into action, everything we learn from Scripture and from the Apostle's example, if we do those things, then the God of peace will be with us. I don't know about you. But I know a lot of wealthy people who have no peace. I know a lot of famous people who have no peace. And they would give it all up. Just live service, but put it to practice the teachings of Scripture. And then the God of peace will be with us. Last reflection question for you tonight is this. Is there any area of my life where my thoughts are controlling me instead of me controlling them? Is there any area of my life? 